Hi, this is Ben Zorns with LSU Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, Provision for the Impossible. We've all heard the story of Moses, and this message deals with the life of Moses. But this is no Charlton Heston version, nor is it a cartoon with a great soundtrack. This is one of the most epic, legendary, and majestic stories of all time. And it really happened. Moses' life is one great demonstration of God's mighty grace working in the impossibilities of our lives. Please, we'd love for you to contact us at www.elerza.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This particular message is weaving together multiple key themes that we deal with at Ellerslie in our basic discipleship process. One of them has to do with the Word of God and how we approach the Word of God. In other words, typically as a Christian today, we have a tendency to chop in half the Bible and to take the New Testament and tote it around as a little New Testament Bible in our pocket and leave the Old Testament behind. After all, it's old. And we have something new. All things have been made new. So that means we should uh, discard the old. And so most of it would say, no, don't discard it. It's good history. You can see some good things, some noble, uh, epic stories uh, that unfold in the Old Testament. But I would like you to know that the New Testament only has validity in the fact that it perfectly correlates and builds upon what's in the Old Testament. You don't scrap the Old Testament. You build upon it. And so what is needed in basic discipleship is an understanding of how to rightly handle the Word of God and to understand how the authority of Jesus was even given. You know that God created this whole system. You know that he created the Hebrew culture? He came up with it. He's the one that designed it. You know that he designed it very specifically? He gave it certain rituals, certain holidays, certain uh, sacrifices, certain buildings. You know that every part of it revealed the one that would come. That's why he's referred to as the root and the offspring of David. In other words, David is in the line of the seed of the Hebrew nation, the one that would bear the Messiah, the one who would come and remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Well, God's the one that came up with the idea. He's the one that said the the seed of this woman will crush the head of the serpent. He's the one that came up with the plan, the great rescue strategy. But who would have ever thought that he would create this whole system and then step into it and fulfill the whole system? Only God could pull it off. And so when you understand that the Old Testament is a big, huge, flashing road sign aimed at one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. That's one of the key elements we're going to bring out. And we're also going to look at certain layers in Scripture. In other words, some of us, we could read the Old Testament into the New, and we can get certain themes out of it. I mean, some good stuff, some great stories. And even if you're just a basic student, uh, just sort of examining Scripture, you you can come away with certain things. You can come away with the fact that God is love. You know, it's not tremendously deep, but guess what? It is profound, and it's just sitting there like a gold nugget on the surface. However, most of us, because we live in a rather lethargic age, only take the gold nuggets that are seated on top of the ground. We don't want to have to dig. But Scriptures are built to dig. And so if you understand what is in scripture, you understand how vast the treasure is and you begin to go after it and dig for it. Oh, it's extraordinary what you find. 
And so what we want to go through in this message is some of what we can dig for to just whet your appetite of how much more there is. Because we're going to take a singular story in the Old Testament. You're going to realize that a singular story in the Old Testament has far greater implications than you could possibly guess upon your spiritual life now. In fact, this story has so much depth that I feel overwhelmed with this message. In other words, I feel like I'm actually doing a disservice to this particular story because I'm probably doing one one one-hundredth of the depth, and I still feel like it's way beyond what I can possibly give in this little time we have together today. That's how exciting the Bible is. Okay? Uh, Let's see. My clicker's not working. Oh, provision for the impossible. Now, let's break down the, the title that we have here. Provision for the impossible. Most of us, when we hear the impossible, we just shy away and say, well, the impossible is impossible, so why in the world would we uh, even go after it? I want you to realize Christianity is impossible. By its very nature, it is. What God has called you to is impossible. If your Christianity can be reasoned through, can be accomplished in your own human effort, you're not living out Christianity. Christianity, by its very nature, is impossible to live out. Now, here's the amazing thing about this title. Provision for the impossible. I want to dig a little deeper into the word provision. Okay, now you'll see I broke it up into its parts. Pro, vision. Uh, Pro, meaning before. Something that is for or, uh, well, I can't give that part. Foresight, that's the other word I was looking for. But uh, pro, vision, sight, foresight. Okay, so provision is based on the fact that you see something ahead of time. You see a need. And as a result, if you see a need, you prepare to meet that need before you arrive at the point of need. Just sort of obvious. The reason we go out and, you know, fathers provide for their families is because they see the fact that if they don't, their family will starve. It just makes sense. However, I want you to realize... That God is the great provider, Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees ahead, who has foresight. You know that God has foresight not just for his own kingdom and for the fact that he's going to have a Messiah come someday and that he needs to get an entire culture, an entire entire world into the exact position that it must be to reveal the magnificence of this Messiah. But he has foresight and the ability to see for you as an individual. At the same time, see for every other individual around you. This God is quite extraordinary, by the way. So provision, foresight, timely care, particularly active foresight. I really like the word active foresight. In other words, it's not just seeing ahead. Some of us even know what the Bible says about what lies ahead. Eh, you know what? I don't really want to have to deal with that. It's not active foresight. Active foresight is seeing and then responding. Or foresight accompanied with the procurement of what is necessary for future use. Or with suitable preparation. Measures taken beforehand, either for security, defense, or attack, or for the supply of wants. The act of providing or making previous preparation. So, God is known as providence. It's one of the names that historic Christianity is oftentimes given to him. Why? Providence. He's the one that has foresight. And he's the one that makes provision for his saints long before they ever reach those great moments of testing and trial. Those great and impossible battles. Do you know that God had it in mind? That he would lead them there? 
that he would back them up into the impossible straits, into the most incredible of situations. And he would have a smile on his face as all of us go, God, what are we going to do? He says, I've made provisions. God knows where he's taking his children. And he is never caught off guard. So, the title, Provision for the Impossible. The principle of the second born. Okay, now this is going to seem like a little distraction. uh, Because even the story I'm going to share with you has nothing seemingly to do with what I'm about to tell you. However, if you're an Ellerslie student, you're going to catch on pretty quick. Okay, in the Bible, there is this principle of the second born. In other words, that which comes second receives the blessing of God. That which is first oftentimes is a symbol of something, and that would be the flesh, okay? Or that which is at enmity with the second, okay? And so you see this throughout uh, Hebrew history. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul enunciates it. He says, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. In other words, the natural is first. Paul in Romans calls the natural or the flesh, uh, the old man is first. For instance, Adam is the classic concept for the old man. What do we all come out of? Genealogically, we're all out of Adam. He's the old man. So we are all out of the old man. We all lug around the old man, his character, his nature, his disposition. Okay. However, the spiritual is not the first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. In other words, the spiritual is second, is what Paul's saying. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. But the, the second man is the Lord from heaven. Okay, now I know that sounds like just a basic statement. It's like, huh, what's so big about that? Well, this is a very important principle in Scripture, and it actually affects the little story I'm going to share with you today. The biblical pattern. Cain is born first. Abel is born second. The first is at enmity with the second. In fact, in this case, the first kills the second. Now, what you're being prepared for in seeing the Old Testament is you're being groomed and trained in doctrine. The New Testament understanding, in the New Covenant, everything that was external in the Old suddenly zooms into the internal. And what was realized on territories and in buildings and with actual sacrifices that are external now is meant to become the house of God is now the human body. And the sacrifices are sacrifices of will. The sacrifices of comforts. And what was external becomes internal. Okay, so what we see is this battle between flesh and spirit. Firstborn, secondborn. Cain, Abel. Ishmael? Can you think of a better illustration of human effort, of the flesh, than Ishmael? God makes a promise, and then Abraham rises up and ends up coming up with a human solution. How? It's impossible! We can't have a child after the natural. And so they come up with a solution which is known in the Bible as Hagar. And I won't go any, into any more detail than that. However, Hagar is the mother of Ishmael. And it's the fruit of self-effort. It's the firstborn. The secondborn is the child of promise. Always. Okay? So we have the secondborn, which is Isaac. Also known in the Hebrew as laughter. That's how hilarious it is when God gets his way. Firstborn, Esau. These are twins in the womb. Esau comes out first. Jacob comes out second. Now, I love to talk about Esau and Jacob. Today, we're not going to be able to go into a lot of great depth with it. 
But Jacob, who eventually ends up gaining the name Israel, which is the name of the entire people group of God, which is actually in Scripture the name even of Jesus, symbolically. Okay, it's the one that wrestles with God and will not let go. It's the man of faith. And look good, he's second born. The second born is actually the one who bears the name for all the people of God. Leah, who's the first wife, not the one that Jacob necessarily was overly interested in having. And that's the one he ends up with. And you have Reuben, who's the firstborn out of that line. You know that Reuben was rejected as the lead descendant, the leader of the 12 tribes of Israel, which are the ones that come out of Jacob. He was rejected. So was Simeon, his secondborn. The third and the fourth, which would be the second pair, were Levi and Judah. Isn't that interesting? Those are the two that end up carrying the line of the kings and the line of the priests. But now we see the second wife, the one that Jacob loved, bears Joseph, the deliverer of the nation of Israel. Manasseh and Ephraim are the sons of Joseph. And Manasseh is born first. And when Jacob is laying his hands on, his son, on Joseph's sons to bless them, he takes his right hand and sticks it on the second born. Joseph says, no, no, father. He is the second born. And Jacob says, I know it. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's giving his primary blessing to the second born. Saul David. Saul is the one that the nation of Israel esteemed. He was head and shoulders above all of Israel. He was the king that Israel wanted. God rejects him. He is the most incredible picture of the flesh in the entire Old Testament. The one who will not yield his throne. It doesn't matter if he's been rejected. He will not give up the nation of Israel the same way many of us will not give up our own lives and bodies to the one who purchased them with his blood. Second born, David. He's the second king of Israel. And the second king is the one after God's own heart. There is something about David that is very special, and every one of us that know the scriptures know that. You have the old covenant, which is the law, and the new covenant, which is born of grace. Two covenants, it's the second one that brings life. The first one, though it is not to be looked at as evil, what it brought was death. What it brought was the awakening and the realization that we are enslaved to sin. It awakened sin. That's what it did. It said, here's the law, you must keep it. Uh, We can't. And it brought death. In other words, what it showed us is that we can't do it. We need a Messiah. That's why it says the law was a schoolmaster, which leads us unto Christ. It leads you to a Messiah. You need help. You can't keep the law. And so we have old covenant to new covenant. Adam, Jesus, first man, last man. He's the second Jesus is the second, the one that literally starts an entire new race, if you will. Those born of the Spirit instead of just after the flesh. The first birth we have is in Adam, but the second birth we have. You ever heard of born again? I know it sounds a little strange when you think about it. We're born again. Yeah, in who? Jesus. He's the second born. The first birth of water, the second birth of the Spirit. Now... I don't know how many of you have ever seen this name in the Old Testament, but the character's name is Amalek. Who's that? Abimelech? No, this is Amalek. And Timnah was concubine to Eliphaz, Esau's son. Whoa, Esau. Who's that? Esau is the firstborn. Remember Esau in Israel, Esau and Jacob? 
The firstborn was Esau. God actually has the audacity to say, Esau hated, Jacob I loved. See, it's not that he hates the person Esau. He hates what Esau represents. Esau is symbolic of the firstborn, the one born in the dust, the one born of the flesh, the one that is self-sufficient. Esau says, I have no need of a birthright. I have no need of my God. I can do it myself. And that behavior and that countenance towards God, he hates. He hates it. Okay, so now we have the descendants of Esau, which is amazing. But you'll notice in the Old Testament, the descendants of a behavior bear the same behavior. The same behavior that Esau had, who is a symbol of the flesh in the Old Testament, he passes on to his grandchildren, as you'll see here. So, and Timnah was concubine to Eliphaz, Esau's son. And she bare to Eliphaz, Amalek. These were the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. Now, that's a fairly innocuous scripture. I mean, who cares? The reason I'm giving you that is because I want you to know that Amalek is the descendant of Esau. That's the reason I'm giving you that. Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. Okay, now, there's a principle in Scripture, and I could go into this in a lot greater detail. However, that's not really the purpose of our message today. And that is, God makes it clear, when Esau and Jacob were in the womb, he basically said, the firstborn, who is Esau, will serve the younger. He said, there are two nations within your womb. First nation, Amalek. Esau. This is the descendant of Esau. It's the first nation. Two nations are in her womb. Who's the second nation? Israel. Those born of the king. So Amalek was first among the nations, but, he sh- but shall be last until he perishes. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. Okay, you start to understand these things in the New Testament at a whole other level. The long history of ambush. Okay, now... You're going to find out that God does not favor the Amalekites. Amalek, and then add a little ites on the end. Amalekites. Amalekites. One of those famous people groups that God just hates, cannot stand, and is always asking his people to destroy. I want you to realize that what we see in the Old Testament, as far as in the external is exactly what God has seen in the internal. And his disgust over it is the same disgust that he has with our flesh. That principle or that regime within us that is self-centered, which is controlling the operation of sin in us. God detests it. Self-effort is detestable in God's sight. The long history of ambush. Now you'll notice, the moment you start taking a step forward, Towards the kingdom of heaven. The moment you say, God, I'm in. I want to serve you. There is a part of you that will begin to wrangle. That will begin to challenge the forward progression of your spiritual life. It's uncanny. And I can tell you it's going to happen even before it happens. If you today said to God, God, I'm in. Take this body and do whatever you want. By the way, you know how hard it is to say those words? Because when you start to even come close to uttering them, do you think you're struck with a tremendous fear? You know, there's this voice that starts hollering it within you. Don't give up your body. Don't let him have it. You don't know what he's going to do with it. He may destroy your reputation. He may destroy your life. Where's that voice coming from? You see, there's two nations at war within you. There are two manner of people wrestling within your spiritual womb. 
The wrestling for control. The firstborn has always been, already been made manifest. It's the flesh. You were born of the flesh. But there is a second born. There is a life. There is a voice crying within you. Yield to God. You need what he has. And it will only work if you gain it. And that's the second. The spirit of God. He wants control over your life. But there is a battle. There is enmity. Cain and Abel. Ishmael and Isaac. I'm sorry. Yes, Ishmael and Isaac. Esau, Jacob. They are within your spiritual womb. And there is a wrestling match. Long history of ambush. The Amalekites are known for this. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at the rear. When you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Okay, so when Israel was coming out of Egypt, one of the first things Israel runs into is the Amalekites. Okay, and the same thing you're going to see. It's the southernmost point of Canaan. That's where they are established. Canaan is called the land of promise, the land that flows with milk and honey. God says, I'm going to deliver you out of Egypt in order that I would bring you in to the land of Canaan. But right at the, bare, at, the, at the bottom level, right is the first point of engagement. You have the Amalekites. The Amalekites don't play fair. And you'll notice this. When you first start coming out of Egypt, the enemy is attacking your weakest points. That's his nature. He doesn't have the guts, obviously, to hate, face you head on. He starts nipping at your heels. So God is saying, remember what Amalek did to you. It's basically saying, I will not forget. Therefore, this is right in the middle. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. 1 Samuel 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek. By the way, you know what's happened here? Israel has gained peace. In the land. Saul has been anointed king. You know what Saul is asked to do? This is the conversation that God has. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. It's time to deal with the Amalekites. And so he tells Saul, go and destroy all the Amalekites. It's the same thing he says to you, by the way. You begin to move forward in your spiritual life. You know what God says to you? He says, it's time. You want to move forward in your spiritual kingdom? You want to see this grow and develop? You have to get rid of the flesh. This is where we start. We start with first things first. Go annihilate the Amalekites. The Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. There is a part of you that is at enmity with your God. You must not feed it anymore. You must not serve it. You must not wash its feet. You must not show it hospitality. You must treat it with the same contempt that God treats it. So the Amalekites, the possessors of southern Canaan, we could call them the first opposition. Here's our story. Remember how I said I'm going to unpack a story and this is just what we're going to do? The battle in Rephidim doesn't sound like that impressive of a story that I'm unpacking. However, what we're about to get into is a lot bigger than Eric Ludi. Okay? The battle in Rephidim. I'm just going to read it to you, and then we're going to go back and give some history. Exodus 17. Then came Amalek, 
The Israelites have just crossed the Red Sea. They've just been delivered from the Egyptian army. And they are headed in. They have no money. I'm sorry. Well, they, they, money. It wasn't what I was intending to say. They have no food, no bread, no water. Three days. God supernaturally supplies for them bread. He supernaturally brings water from a rock, which most likely, if you go on that same journey and follow their trail, was at the top of a hill. And then it went down into a valley called Rephidim. Okay? And in that valley, it appears that Amalek marched out to meet and to stop the forward progression of the Israelites. And not just Amalek, but all the surrounding countries that the Amalekites could whip up into a frenzy. These are revolutionaries. They have just spurned Pharaoh. They were his slaves. And instead they're on the loose. And if we don't stop them, they'll make us their slaves. There's the flesh for you right there. They'll make us their slaves. The flesh hates the spirit of God. He hates the agenda of God in your life. Your body does not want to submit to a higher authority. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose out men. Choose us out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. What a great statement. It's like if his hands were up, Israel was winning. But if he ever dropped them, Amalek started winning. But his hands were heavy. I mean, how long can you just hold your hands up? His hands are heavy. He does not have the ability in and of himself to do this. But his hands were heavy and they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands. The one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek. I just love that word, discomfited. Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, if you're an Ellerslie student, you know my three illustrations. One spot, two spots, three spots. First spot, Egypt. These are spiritual locations for your soul. Wilderness is in the middle. And then you have the land flowing with milk and honey, or the land of promise, known as Canaan. This is symbolic. Israel, I'm sorry, Egypt in the Old Testament and in the New is symbolic of the world, the world system, the principle of sin, enslavement. You are literally battered and beaten down, and you have no outlet. You cannot get out of your own enslavement. But one has come. Remember, the deliverer, Moses, came and through a series of extraordinary miracles, literally bent the strong Egyptian power to its knees. And then Moses supplied them with the secret. Put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your houses. And the death angel will pass over you. 
Meanwhile, the death angel killed all the firstborn in all of Egypt. In every house, there was weeping and crying. The firstborn of the cattle were all destroyed. This is massacre in Egypt. Finally, the Egyptians are pleading with Pharaoh, get them out of here. God delivered his people. And they cross over the Red Sea into the wilderness. Most of us expect that when we cross out of Egypt, we should immediately be in the land of promise. But welcome to the great tension of Christianity. There is a passageway in between. And that passageway is your testing. It's the testing of your faith. You see, God's the one that parts the Red Sea for you. But from that point forward, God says, you step. Well, God, if you parted it, I could step. If you just wipe out my enemies, then I would step. Instead, God says, step and watch what I will do. It's a whole new test, but that wilderness is a testing ground. But most of us spend our entire Christian life in the wilderness. And we never progress into the land of promise, a land flown with milk and honey. If most of us were asked if we have milk and honey in our spiritual lives, never tasted it. We have some, you know, in the wilderness we have manna. And it tastes sort of like coriander seed with honey. So we have a little honey, a little taste, but it's not quite what we see described in the, in the, in the land of promise. A land flowing with milk and honey. This is the luscious land, the land where the fruit is so big that it takes two men to carry out a cluster of grapes. It's the land of fruit. Have you ever noticed that your spiritual life doesn't bear much fruit? If it's in the wilderness, it can't bear much fruit. Fruit doesn't grow well in the wilderness. It's meant to grow in the land of promise. You must press forward. Pull up your tent stakes. Go forward in Jesus Christ. But you have a problem. You come out of Egypt and you're going to notice that there is an army with swords drawn that is waiting for you. And they want to take you apart at your point of weakness. You've just started. You're an infant in your spiritual walk. You don't know how to fight battles. You're not an armed company. You know that Israel did not come out of Egypt with arms and with armory. They didn't come out with shields and swords. And yet somehow in this story, it says Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Just wait. That's part of what I'm teaching you. It's extraordinary. Remember what the title was? Provision for the impossible. Here's your impossible right here. You know what Moses has? A whole disordered mess. Notice an entire nation of slaves that were brick makers. That's what he has. He has a whole bunch of women and children that are crying and screaming, going, oh no, we got an armed force coming against us. What's Moses to do? That's sort of what Jesus has too. I mean, look around at us. Just sort of this disorderly mess. And somehow God is going to bring glory to his name in and through his church. That's his chosen means. In and through a whole bunch of ragtag sheep. He is going to bring order and victory. The unseen preparations of Jehovah. So this is what you don't see. In other words, what you see is the Amalekites marching against Israel. But let's look a little closer at what is taking place and let's allow the impossibilities to seep in. Let's allow ourselves to behold how magnificent this battle is. Look at the subtitle, The Marvels of Provenient Grace. 
Provenient is like the word provision. It means something that is dealt with beforehand. Okay? It is pre, obviously, before. But it is something that is given, something that is offered beforehand. It's like provision. And when we get into our darkest corners, when we are backed up into the impossible, and we're staring at either an empty bank account, we're staring at a bill that is so large, we're staring at a health crisis that there's no way out of, and the doctor has made his declaration over us. Whatever it is, it's the impossible corner that we've been backed into. There's two ways to handle that impossible corner. One is the way everyone else does. Cry, scream, a little self-pity. You know, write a note to everyone saying, I love you, uh, but I'm passing on now. In other words, the days of Eric Ludy are over. Woe is me. That's how most of us handle it. We want everyone to know how miserable we are. But how does a saint of God handle the corner of impossibility? Stands up, turns towards the greatest foe that has marched him into the corner and says, hey, 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 uh, attention, please. Watch what my God is going to do. Yeah. And it's impossible. Okay, so watch. The marvels of provenient grace. Matthew 6, your heavenly father knows that you have need of all these things. What a great statement to your soul whenever you are backed into that corner. Do you not know that your heavenly father knows that you have needs right now? I mean, there's a scene we're about to get to where Moses and the Israelites are backed up to the Red Sea and they're surrounded by mountains. There is no means of escape. And they're literally against the strongest military force in the world. Has marched them into a corner. And God has them exactly where he wants them. Your heavenly father knows that you have need of all these things. So let's go back in time. We're just going to rewind the tape. Okay, and we're going to go back in the Hebrew history to right before the child Moses was born. I want you to realize the times were very, very bad for the Egyptians. I'm sorry, for the Israelites. The days of Joseph, his rulership over Egypt, long past. A new reign or dynasty of kings had entered into the Egyptian frontier, and they despised the Hebrews because the Hebrews for whatever reason, were able to make money easily. The Hebrews were industrious, and they produced babies a thousand a minute, it seemed. They were just producing like bunny rabbits all over the place. We must stop this nation, otherwise they will rule us. And so all of Egypt united together to enslave the Egyptians, to oppress the Egyptians. But then it got worse. The foretelling Egyptian priest. There's a priest. You know, have you ever heard of Jonas and Jambres? It's mentioned in the New Testament as they're most likely the priests of the wizards that when Moses threw down his rod and it turned into a serpent, that they're the ones that mimicked it and threw down theirs. It could be that one of them was Jonas or Jambres that was this foretelling Egyptian priest. But what we see, Flavius Josephus, who's the renowned historian of the Jews, he actually lived in the time of Jesus. Which is really interesting because he testifies as a third party witness to the fact that Jesus did these things. He wasn't even a Christian, he was a Pharisee. But he literally is a historian, he's an accurate historian. And so what he gives is he gives the story of the Jews from the Jews' perspective. 
He also is a rev- he reverence the scriptures. Okay, in other words, he's a man who reverences scriptures, but also there is more in Jewish history that is not told us. But for the Jews who didn't have movies, who didn't have television, they lived by story. And they were constantly passing on the stories to the ages and generations. Flavius Josephus collected them. And so what we have is Flavius Josephus giving us a take, if you will. Now, this isn't scripture. This is just history. Giving us a take on what was happening before Moses was born. One of those sacred scribes of the Egyptians, who were very sagacious in foretelling future events, truly, told the king about this time that there would be a child to be born to the Israelites. Who... If he were reared, would bring the Egyptian dominion low and would raise the Israelites. That he would excel all men in virtue and obtain a glory that would be remembered through all ages. Isn't this amazing that this is in Egyptian history too? That there was this prophecy of one that would be born of the Israelites. And his fame would last the generations. Which thing was so feared by the king that according to this man's opinion, he commanded that they should cast every male child which was born to the Israelites into the river and destroy it. Now, what we see in the Bible is this exact thing, which is not much detail. Okay, just suddenly the Egyptians decide that they're going to uh, kill the little boys uh, that are born to the Hebrews. And so we have this picture of something extraordinary. Even the Egyptians are feeling it. But the oppression only increases on the, on the Israelites. God is stirring in this land. It is time for a deliverance. The noble Hebrew father, a man whose name was Amram, one of the nobler sort of the Hebrews, was afraid for his whole nation, lest it should fail by the want of young men to be brought up hereafter, and was very uneasy at it, his wife being then with child, and he knew not what to do. Hereupon he betook himself to prayer, to God. Accordingly, God had mercy on him and was moved by his supplication. Again, Amram, for those of you that don't know, in the biblical account, is the father of Moses. But he's also the father of Aaron and Miriam. Okay? They're already born. Those are his older brother and sister. And yet, guess who happens to be pregnant at the very time that this edict is brought out? Amram's wife. And so Amram has a unique and keen interest in what's taking place here. And he realizes that this is... Not just wrong, but outrageously wrong. And it's defying the people of God. And so he cries out to God in prayer. And this is the legend, as uh, Josephus would tell it, which Josephus would say, this is not legend, this is history. He said, he stood by him in his sleep and exhorted him not to despair of his future favors. For that child, out of dread of whose nativity the Egyptians have doomed the Israelite children to destruction... In other words, he's saying that child that the priest has foretold will come shall be this child of thine and shall be concealed from those who watch to destroy him. In other words, Amram is told that your child will be concealed and this child is the one that will deliver the people of Israel. And when he is brought up in a surprising way, he shall deliver the Hebrew nation from the distress they are under from the Egyptians. His memory shall be famous while the world lasts and this not only among the Hebrews, but foreigners also. The unique formation of the Hebrew general. Now, there's a lot to this story that you'll notice I'm leaving out. And the reason I'm reading Josephus in this, most of us have read this story or heard this story so many times that we've lost the beauty of it. So when you read from Josephus' perspective, suddenly it's like has a freshness to it. It's like, huh, that's intriguing. Well, the whole story is amazing. 
There's an entire nation that is entombed in Egypt. They can't get out. They have no power to get out. And yet even through the Egyptians, there is a prophecy given. So the Egyptians rise up in even greater oppression. And in the midst of this oppression, God saves one of the children. In the midst of even heightened scrutiny, every child born must be destroyed. And yet in the midst of even heightened scrutiny, this child Moses is born. The unique formation of the Hebrew general. I'm not exactly sure. Yes. And he, Moses, was by the confession of all, as well for his greatness of mind as for his contempt for, of difficulties, the best of all the Hebrews. I love that statement. He had a great mind and he had a contempt for difficulties. Right, don't you love that? I'd love to be described that way, that I, Eric has a contempt for difficulties. He, in other words, I'm not under them. I hold them down here. Eh, it's just a difficulty. Who cares? Snub your nose at a difficulty. I'm focused on Jesus. The best of all the Hebrews. For Abraham was his ancestor of the seventh generation. I put that in on purpose. Moses is the seventh generation. That should trigger something amongst the Ellerslie students, which is the number of completion. Eight, which would be the number for Joshua's generation, is the number of new beginnings. Now Moses' understanding became superior to his age, nay, far beyond that standard. And when he was taught, he discovered greater quickness of apprehension than was usual at his age. And his actions at that time promised greater when he should come to the age of a man. God did also give him that tallness when he was but three years old, as was wonderful. And as for his beauty, there was nobody, when they saw Moses, not greatly surprised at the beauty of his countenance. Nay, it happened frequently that those that met him as he was carried along the road were obliged to turn again upon seeing the child. That they left what they were about and stood still a great while to look on him. For the beauty of the child was so remarkable and natural to him on many accounts that it detained the spectators and made them stay longer to look upon him. Now I want you to just pause here and reflect upon how the Jewish mind remembers Moses. This is the Jewish mind remembering Moses. In the scriptures, we have only what is necessary to train us. And the Jewish history gives these little nuances which are very intriguing. Because what we have is we have this story that Moses was not killed, but was sequestered and hidden. But then one day, he's put in a basket on a river. Now, if anyone were to find a little baby of three months old on a river, who's a Hebrew, what should they do with him? Kill him. But what is different about this child? He has such a beauty that when he is seen by the daughter of the king of Egypt, there is something, even though he's a Hebrew, he's so beautiful. He's so beautiful. I want you to realize it's extraordinary. Even the Jews notice that. One of Josephus' lines that I didn't put in here, because there's a ton I didn't, basically said God made him perfect for the position, perfect for everything that was needful. The uncanny preservation of his life, Flavius Josephus said, Thermuthus, therefore perceiving him to be so remarkable a child, adopted him for her son. Thermuthus, by the way, even though I don't think her name is given in the uh, scriptural text, is the name historically given to the daughter of uh, Ramses, the, uh, the uh, pharaoh at the time. Thermuthus, therefore, perceiving to be so remarkable a child, adopted him for her son, having no child of her own. She just happens to have no child of her own. You follow me? 
When you understand how God makes provision, how he closes the womb of Thermuthus, Thermuthus, let me get that again, Thermuthus, that's an interesting name, closes her womb and then makes this Hebrew child not only concealed, but then moves Amram to move forward and say, it is no longer a good idea for us to hide him here. We must release him unto God. That's how the Hebrews understand the story of what Amram did is he literally told his wife, we need to build a little boat for him to float down the river and entrust him to God who has promised that he will be raised up. I mean, what? What a thing to do! I mean, it's one thing to conceal him. It's a whole other thing at the age of three months to say, it's time. Um, Stick him in a little boat. But because of these factors... And when one time had carried Moses to her father, this is, I, okay, I had to include, this is just so fabulous. So Thermuthus had carried Moses to her father, who's the Pharaoh, by the way, Ramses. She showed him to him and said, I have brought up a child who is of a divine form and of a generous mind. And as I've received him from the bounty of the river in, I thought proper to adopt him my son and the heir of thy kingdom. And she had said this. Now, this is the same king, by the way, that ruled for the extinction, the extermination of Moses. And she had said that she put the infant into her father's hands. So he took him and hugged him to his breast and on his daughter's account, in a pleasant way, put his diadem upon his head. That's a crown. Upon his head. Listen to this. But Moses threw it down to the ground and in a puerile mood, he wreathed it round and trod upon his foot. Preparations for war in the desert. We have this man who has been sequestered, hidden, concealed, made beautiful, found lovely in the eyes of Thermuthis, literally becoming the heir to the kingdom of Egypt. This man has not been charged and entrusted with any small thing. He literally is the future monarch of Egypt. Though he be the very one prophesied about which caused all the other Hebrew boys to be destroyed. It's just amazing. We have the need for a man to be built to not lead Egypt, but to lead Israel. How is that going to happen? When you start talking about provision for the impossible, first of all, how are we going to deliver an entire people group? An entire people From Egypt. Yeah, we'd like all your slaves. Could we take them all? Every last one of them? Not just the people, but all their cattle and all their possessions. And by the way, when we're leaving, could we plunder you of all your riches too? God has a great sense of humor. Preparations for war in the desert. You see, Moses is going to be the general of a mighty army. I know when you look at the Israelites, they don't look like a mighty army. But this is a mighty army in preparation that will literally lay low 31 hostile empires in the land of Canaan. That's what God's building. So what does he need? He needs a general. He needs a man of war. Most of us don't think of Moses that way, as a man of war. However, what God is doing is he's creating the Hebrew war machine. Now, I want you to realize, some of this makes people uncomfortable today. It's like, oh, that God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is the exact same God as the New Testament. 
However, his war machine is not as it was then. Our battle is not against people, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of an unseen realm. And whereas David fought against physical Philistines, we fight against those puppeteering the physical Philistines to see the physical Philistines set free and come into the kingdom of heaven. We have a greater battle. The Hebrew war machine lives on. Preparations for war in the desert. Moses, the mighty military conqueror. How many of you, when you think of Moses, think of a mighty military conqueror? Isn't that interesting? Here's some Jewish history, which also is, by the way, Egyptian history. The king of Egypt commanded his daughter to produce Moses. Why? Let me give you a little background. The Ethiopians have invaded Egypt and are basically about to take over and make Egypt, Egypt their slaves. Okay, Ethiopia, for those of you that know geography, is right beneath Egypt on the map in Africa. So the king of Egypt commanded his daughter to produce Moses. Why would they ask him to produce Moses? No one in Egypt trusts Moses. Did you know that? They all remember the prophecy, and it's so obvious to them, but the king will not touch him because it's his daughter's son. But everyone in Egypt is looking at him askant, saying, he's, the, he's our problem. He's better than any of us. He's stronger than any of us. He's more brilliant than any of us. At any point in time, he can take us over. But Egypt has been brought so low and bent so low that the king actually commands his daughter to produce Moses. They need a general. This is good. That he might be made the general of their army, upon which when she had made him swear, he would do him no harm. In other words, he made the king swear that he would do Moses no harm. That's how much she trusted the Egyptians. She delivered him to the king and supposed his assistance would be of great advantage to them. So Moses, at the persuasion both of Thermuthus and the king himself, cheerfully undertook the business. I love that statement. Where he gave a wonderful demonstration of his sagacity. Moses invented a wonderful stratagem to preserve the army safe and without hurt. He came upon the Ethiopians before they expected him, and joining battle with them, he beat them and deprived them of the hopes they had of success against the Egyptians, and went on in overthrowing their cities and indeed made a great slaughter of these Ethiopians. History would attest that Moses was like a Napoleon or an Alexander the Great at that level of military genius. Who would have ever guessed that isn't what it says in the Bible? You know that Moses wrote what was in the Bible? He was a meek man. <laughs> I could see him coming up to this point and going, God, please don't make me write that. He goes, I'll let you skip it over. We'll, we'll let them find out a different way. Isn't that amazing? He's a mighty military conqueror. But he's so humble. He has like a shepherd's garb on. How did that happen? Because when he came back from this war, the king was so threatened by his glory that he plotted to kill him. Of course, what we see in scriptures, we see more circumstances that led to this. But Moses realized his time in Egypt was done. He was a hunted man. And he flees into the wilderness to Midian. Forty years later, the shepherd Moses. The shepherd mighty conqueror Moses. Who else does that sound like? A shepherd and a mighty conqueror. That's David. That's Jesus. Isn't that interesting? A shepherd and a mighty conqueror in battle. What a weird combination that is. And that's our Moses, who is a picture of David, who's a picture of Jesus. This is Irenaeus, who's one of the early church founders, fathers, 
who was one of the ones that clarified a lot of the fallacies of the day or the errors uh, that were floating around in the church, Irenaeus really esteemed Josephus' writings. So Josephus says that when Moses was nourished in the palace, he was appointed general of the army against the Ethiopians and conquered them. So in Christian history, this is actually not an unusual thing to understand Moses as a mighty conqueror. In Acts 7, we see Stephen standing before that tribunal that stoned him. And he says, and when he was cast out, speaking of Moses, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Well, that's just a very bare-bones statement, like we've said all throughout Ellerslie. The Bible just says what it needs to say. It leaves the rest for the imagination. It's like, come on, God, could you give me a little more? Well, Josephus at least can help us out. The impossible straits. Now, we're skipping a lot. Moses, at the end of 40 years, stands before a burning bush, gets the commission of God to return to Egypt. The previous king that wanted for your life is dead. Now, go and command that he would release, this new king would release the people of Israel. So he comes, as the story goes, that's the plagues, the ten plagues. I mean, what an incredible story it really is. And you should read it even with Josephus' commentary. It's very fascinating. But after all of this, when the people are released, which is quite the story, okay? Just trust me. If you've never read the story, it's extraordinary. It's amazing. The people are finally released, and they are leaving in droves. It says that there were 600,000 men, so that doesn't include women, children, and cattle. Many would estimate upwards of around 2 million, which if they were, I forgot, I was looking at some statistic on it, which was talking about if they were lined up like 100 or 150 wide, it's like 15, 20 miles or something like that. Or maybe, I don't know, it could have been 150 miles. It was some extreme amount. It's like, well, in the world do you make it around like that? Well... We have ourselves a multitude, a nation leaving a nation, okay? The impossible straits. This nation is backed up into an impossible corner, all right? Brace yourself because this is your soul. Flavius Josephus' accounts of this. By the way, I'm not complaining about the biblical account of this. I just think this is fun. Now, when the Hebrews had overtaken the Hebrews, I'm sorry, that made a lot of sense. Now, when the Egyptians had overtaken the Hebrews, they prepared to fight them. And by their multitude, they drove them into a narrow place. For the number that pursued after them was 600 chariots with 50,000 horsemen and 200,000 footmen, all armed. Now, remember, the Egyptians have no battle armory, armament. They have nothing. They're just slaves. The one thing they have is that they took the plunder of Egypt. In other words, they literally came up to houses around them to their neighbors and ask for their goods saying you want to be rid of us give me something that's valuable (laughs) and the egyptians were bent on the point of saying we want you out of here take it so the the israelites were leaving with plunder but it was like gold jewels it wasn't uh clanging swords and shields and so we have ourselves surrounded by armed Soldiers. These men are trained for battle on horses and chariots. This isn't a good situation. We got a cattle. Imagine your goat. You're trying to hit him with a goat. This isn't a good situation. They also seized on the passages by which they imagined the Hebrews might fly, shutting them up between inaccessible precipices and the sea. 
Oh, no. We have ourselves an impossible situation. Don't you love it? You see, you like this one because you're not in it. (laughs) But I want you to realize, God builds us for these moments. And it's these moments that reveal his glory. God purposely will set up your life for impossible straits. I know you don't want that. I know how you work. You work like me. I'm, I'm a human. And as a human, we want everything easy. We want everything to be, you know, without hindrance, without difficulty. But the way is narrow. And few are those who find it. The narrow straight is the way. And you could say, God, this doesn't seem like the right direction because it leads to the Red Sea. Uh, And I have an army around here. This doesn't seem like it was the right way. And God says, I have you right where I want you and I have them right where I want them. What's the state of your soul in this situation? I want to show you what the state of the soul was for the Israelites and what the difference is between the state of the soul for the Israelites and Moses. It's really amazing. The Hebrews, if they should have thought of fighting, had no weapons. They expected a universal destruction. That's what they expected. We're dead! We're dead! Could you imagine? Will you guys be quiet? Hush! You're only, you know that one statement, uh, it's not the time to panic. And this is like, it's time to panic! (laughs) They expected a universal destruction unless they delivered themselves up to the Egyptians. So they laid the blame on Moses. How many times have you been back in that corner? And what do you do? You blame God. You blame Moses. You blame your deliverer. You blame the one that's taken you out of all these other hostile situations. The one who has proven himself so many times over in your life. And you turn against him. and say, how could you do this to me? So they laid the blame on Moses and forgot all the signs that had been wrought by God for the recovery of their freedom. And this so far that their incredulity prompted them to throw stones at the prophet. While he encouraged them and promised them deliverance. I was driving down the road this week and I had some movie score type of soundtrack uh, in my car. And I had this scene in my head and I was crying. There was something about it that speaks to the depths of my soul. Because how am I responding when I'm backed up into that corner? I could feel it. It's like I could feel the impossibilities and the massive nature of the the army that was against me and how small I was. And I see these that I'm leading and they're turning on me and there's stones being thrown at me. And what does Moses do? He encourages them and promises them deliverance. I promise you, I promise you. Can he bring about the deliverance? He knows the one he believes in. But Moses, though the multitude looked fiercely at him, did not, however, give over the care of them, but despised all dangers. Remember he had a contempt for difficulties? He despised all dangers. Out of his trust in God, he said, It is no better than madness at this time to despair of the providence of God. I need to read that for some of you again. It is no better than madness at this time to despair of the providence of God. Don't you realize that God saw this moment? 
Don't you realize that he saw it before we arrived here and he has made provision? Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. I need something tangible, Eric. That's the way we all feel. That's our natural instinct, but that's the firstborn mentality. You're the twiceborn. You see things differently. The prayer of Moses in the impossible straits. See if this is your prayer. Thou art not ignorant, O Lord, that it is beyond human strength and human contrivance to avoid the difficulties we are now under. But it must be thy work altogether to procure deliverance to this army, which has left Egypt at thy appointment. We despair of any other assistance or contrivance and have a recourse only to that hope we have in thee. And if there be any method that can promise us an escape by thy providence, we look up to thee for it. Okay, brace yourselves. And let it come quickly. Boy, how many times have we prayed that one? And manifest thy power to us. And do thou raise up this people unto good courage and hope of deliverance. Who are deeply sunk into a disconsolate state of mind. We are in a helpless place. But still, it is a place that thou possesses. We are in a helpless place. But God possesses this place. Still, the sea is thine. The mountains also that enclose us are thine. So that these mountains will open themselves if thou commands them. And the sea also, if thou commands it, will become dry land. Nay, we might escape by a flight through the air. If thou should determine we should have that way of salvation. All we know is that you're getting us out of here. That's all we know. So come quickly and do it. (laughs) He'll lay the mountains to a plain. He will open up the waters and they'll walk across on dry land. They'll escape two million of them by flight. This is long before the Wrights brothers, right brothers. <laughs> that is amazing. And that is the mighty deliverer. And that's the faith that God is wanting to build within his saints. That when we are backed into that impossible strait, this is the way we think. Unarmed, unready, and unsteady. The first steps forward out of Egypt. Now, for those of you that don't know, the waters parted. Waters parted. And an entire nation walked through on dry land to the other side. The Egyptians followed suit. And I love how Josephus says it. Josephus says, but they didn't realize that this divine road was meant as a means of escape for the oppressed, but would not be a means to help the avengers. Isn't that an amazing statement? It is a way of deliverance. God has made a divine road for us. His own body has opened up. He has parted the waters and allowed us to walk across on dry land, but don't think of walking the divine road unless you realize It's meant to be an escape from the Egyptian slavery. If you're wanting the Egyptian slavery, this divine road isn't where you should be walking. It'll swallow you up. If you still want your Egypt, you just stay in Egypt. This is a divine road for those ready to get out of their enslavement. So now we're out. 
Somehow the impossible has already taken place and the entire Egyptian army, it literally says that not one man remained of the Egyptians to even go back and tell the tale to the rest of the Egyptians. Not one. Every last one of them was swallowed up. God's pretty good at what he does. Now this is the impossible to another impossible. Could you imagine how it must have looked in that situation? And then imagine layering on top of that. And God, I trust that you will destroy every single one of them without us even lifting a finger. So this is the first steps out of Egypt. On the next day, Moses gathered together the weapons of the Egyptians, which were brought to the camp of the Hebrews by the current of the sea. And he conjectured that this also happened by divine providence, that so they might not be destitute of weapons. What's the battle that's just up ahead? Rephidim. And how did they kill the Amalekites? By the edge of the sword. Now, who would have ever thought by the edge of the Egyptian sword? They didn't have weapons. But God suddenly, by the current of a sea, brings up all the swords. Could you imagine the clang of swords in the Israelite camp? Not only did they see their enemies destroyed, but then the plunder was brought to them. Didn't go to the other shore. It didn't sink to the bottom. I don't know that many swords that float. Interesting thought. The edge of the sword. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. A closer look at the first great battle, embarking upon southern Canaan. Now what I want you to see is that you are being prepared for a battle. Some of you have walked through it. But when you first leave Egypt, your first great battle is the flesh. It's Rephidim. It's the southernmost part of Canaan. They want to stop your forward progression. They do not want to be your slaves. The flesh does not want to serve the Spirit of God. He's at enmity with it. There is a part in you that is wrangling for the controls. It doesn't want to be extreme for Jesus Christ. What part is that? It's the part that defies the living God. It's the part that wants you on the throne of your life. It's the part that wants comfort, ease. It doesn't want difficulty. It wants life on your terms, not on God's. That is not your friend. And you must realize that if you don't rise up with the weaponry you've been given, even though it came in the most strange way, if you don't rise up and fight and take down that enemy, that enemy will take you down. And you will not progress into the land of promise. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. That is all the Bible says about it. Now wait till you see Josephus. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the Bible statement, the scripture, and then I'll go through Josephus. And you're going to say, couldn't we like swap them out? <laughs> see, God has a great sense of humor. And I've said this more than a few times to, the, to all of us Ellerslie students. God just says it. You could say he's a man of many words because the Bible's pretty thick, but he's a man of very few words. He says, this is all you need to know. You see, the Bible is what we build our doctrine from. It's what we reason from. Spiritually, it is the living word. It is the rock. It is the canon. Josephus is merely a voice of history. He's not without error. But this is. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. 
Now look at what Josephus says. The name of the Hebrews began already to be everywhere renowned, and rumors about them ran abroad. This made the inhabitants of those countries to be in no small fear. Accordingly, they sent ambassadors to one another and exhorted one another to defend themselves and to endeavor to destroy these men. Those that induced the rest to do so were such as inhabited Gobolitis and Petra. Ah, they were called Amalekites and were the most warlike of the nations that lived thereabout. And whose kings exhorted one another and their neighbors to go to this war against the Hebrews. Telling them that those who endeavor to crush a power on its first rise are wiser than those that endeavor to put a stop to its progress when it has become formidable. Flavius Josephus also added, These proceedings of the Amalekites occasioned perplexity and trouble to Moses. Just get yourself in Moses' skin. He just escaped Egypt. He's like, huh, whew. Now he doesn't have food for his people. Now he doesn't have water for his people. Now he gets water and he's starting to, you know, go, oh, okay. Food, water, we're starting to get this together. And then he hears the clangs of swords and the sounds of shields and boots. And he looks up. These proceedings occasioned perplexity and trouble to Moses, who expected no such warlike preparations. He, in other words, didn't see it. Isn't that an incredible statement from Josephus? Moses didn't see it. Who did? God. And when these nations were ready to fight, the multitude of the Hebrews were in a mighty disorder and in want of all necessaries, and yet were to make war with men who were thoroughly well prepared for it. If you're a betting man or a woman, where are you leaning right now? Remember, you don't ever bet against God. Then therefore it was that Moses began to encourage them and to exhort them to have a good heart and rely on God's assistance. Now that's pretty paltry. Have a good heart. Have a good heart. Just wait. I I give you one of Moses' battle speeches up here. It's a little better than have a good heart. Here it is. You guys ready for this? Now this is my adaptation. I took Josephus' words and I adapted it. So it has a little Eric Ludi epic ring to it. But this is the battle speech that every single one of us needs as we prepare for Rephidim. We are an army built by God and for God. You mustn't measure our numbers based on what you see with your eyes, but rather you must determine the Hebrew war machine to be of vast numberless ranks, lacking nothing, armed to the teeth with the finest weaponry, weaponry and wear, fully financed, without need for anything, possessing all that which you would supply you as God's soldiers, that undaunted courage to march confidently into battle. You must reckon that you, God's army, are an unstoppable force, handcrafted by the Lord of hosts himself, And you must have eyes to see the enemy ranks before you as they actually are. They are not strong and mighty as they would first appear. But rather, they are an army withering with cowardice. They are a small, unimpressive troop. They are unarmed, weak, and in want of all convenience that would properly prepare them for battle. Do not perceive them to be a ready force. But rather an ignorant and disordered troop that is set out on an ill-conceived battle attempting to blaspheme the armies of the living God. So, dear soldiers of the war machine of God Almighty, be strong and of good courage, for the Lord is the conqueror. And, and, something else very good. It'll be in the notes online. 
And Moses said unto Joshua, this is all, you know, that first line, it says, uh, let me go to it real quick. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. That's all the Bible says. That's it. And then, and Moses said unto Joshua, choose out men and go and fight with Amalek. That's the Bible. That's what it says. Just gets right to the point, says it. And then Flavius Josephus waxes eloquent. Moses then called together the princes of their tribes and their chief men, both separately and conjointly. The young men he charged to obey their elders and the elders to hearken to their leaders. So the people were elevated in their minds and ready to try their fortune in battle and hoped to be thereby at length delivered from all their miseries. Nay, they desired that Moses would immediately lead them against their enemies without the least delay, that no backwardness might be a hindrance to their present resolution. So Moses sorted all that were fit for war into different troops and set Joshua, the son of Nun, of the tribe of Ephraim, over them. Is that a small thing? Joshua is set over them. Joshua, Yeshua, the man of salvation. Same name for Jesus. I don't know if you see it already. The same name for Jesus is put over them. You know where he's from? He's of the tribe of Ephraim, the second born. Isn't that amazing? He's the eighth generation and he's the new general. Moses is equipped as a general. He's trained as a general. But the one that must fight this battle isn't the law. It's grace. It's grace that will prove victorious. It's the next generation. It's the second born that can win this battle. The description of the second generation general. Listen to what Josephus says about Joshua in Hebrew history. So Moses set Joshua, the son of Nun of the tribe of Ephraim, over them. One that was of great courage, patient to undergo labors, of great abilities to understand, of great abilities to speak what was proper, very serious in the worship of God, indeed made like another Moses, a teacher of piety towards God. The great conqueror of the Ethiopians tutors Israel's new general. Who's the schoolmaster and the tutor for the next general? It's Moses. It's the law. Is the law is the schoolmaster. For the next general. He also appointed a small party of the armed men to be near the water and to take care of the children and the women of the, of the, entire, of the entire camp. Isn't that a great statement? That Moses commanded that certain men remain behind to protect the women and the children to protect the things in the camp. So that whole night they prepared themselves for the battle. They took their weapons, if any of them had such, as were well made, and attended their commander as ready to rush forth to the battle as soon as Moses should give the word of command. Moses also kept awake, teaching Joshua, after what manner he should order his camp. But when the day began, Moses called for Joshua again and exhorted him to approve himself in deeds such as one of his reputation made men expect from him. And to gain glory by the present expedition in the opinion of those under him for his exploits in, in this battle. He also gave a particular exhortation to the principal men of the Hebrews and encouraged the whole army as it stood armed before him. And this is what it says in scripture. Moses said, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Now for those of you that are Ellerslie students, rod of God should trigger something. The rod is the term cannon. We understand the 66 books of the Bible to be the canon or the rod of God. It's established based on the rod of Aaron. The authority of Israel is given. 
God hallmarks and says, Moses and Aaron have authority. Moses is commissioned to write a book. God canonizes that book. And all of Israel trembles for that book, known as the first five books, the Pentateuch, has divine right and authority to control the actions of Israel. And then every book subsequent after that, what followed after the Pentateuch? The book Joshua. Isn't that great? What is built on top of the law? Joshua. The rod is lifted up above Moses. Okay, so Jesus, if you've gone through Ellerslie, you know this, is the canon. He's the canon made flesh. He is all the Old Testament combined into one man. He is the word of God made flesh. He is the rod of God and thusly he has the authority and the divine right to rule and control our lives in the church of Jesus Christ. Moses said, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Flavius Josephus says, and when he had thus animated the army both by his words and works and prepared everything, he retired to a mountain and committed the army to God and to Joshua. This is what it says in scripture. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. I want you to realize there's three men that go to the top of a hill. And God names them by name. Moses, Aaron, and Hur. And Hur went up to the, uh, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. This is what Flavius Josephus says. So the armies joined battle, and it came to a close fight, hand to hand, both sides showing great alacrity and encouraging one another. And in Exodus 17, it says, And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Flavius Josephus says, And indeed, while Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, the Hebrews were too hard for the Amalekites. But Moses, not being able to sustain his hands, thus stretched out, for as often as he let down his hands, so often were his own people worsted. Don't you love the word worsted? We need to use it more. He bade his brother Aaron and Hur, their sister Miriam's husband, to stand on each side of him. And take hold of his hands and not permit his weariness to prevent it, but to assist him in the extension of his hands. When this was done, the Hebrews conquered the Amalekites by main force. And indeed, they had all perished, meaning all the Amalekites had perished, unless the approach of the night had obliged the Hebrews to desist from killing any more. Do you guys know what just happened in front of you? A battle of ragtag sheep that are slaves in a foreign land, or in territory they know not, have women, children, and cattle with them that they're trying to figure out what to do with in the middle of the desert heat, have an army that is well-prepared and fully armed, not just the Amalekites, but all the nations that have grouped up with the Amalekites to take them on and to say, you go no farther. And Moses says, go take them. Go take them, Joshua. He sends forth his general, to fight the impossible battle. And they don't just win. It's an all-out route. And Joshua discomfited Amalek. The word discomfited just isn't as much as I want. I I looked it up in the Hebrew. Because it's like, 
Utterly destroyed is what I'm looking for. Instead, it meant basically they prostrated him. In other words, they were so bent low. There was nothing left. There was nothing that could rise up and defy. They were completely enslaved. Those that were still alive became the slaves of the Hebrews. Completely discomfited them. And his people with the edge of the sword... Flavius Josephus says, So our forefathers obtained a most signal and most seasonable victory. For they not only overcame those that fought against them, but terrified also the neighboring nations, and got great and splendid advantages, which they obtained of their enemies by their hard pains in this battle. For when they had taken the enemy's camp, they got ready booty for the public and for their own private families, whereas till then they had not any sort of plenty of even necessary food. They not only made slaves of the bodies of their, of their enemies, but subdued their minds also. And after that, this battle became terrible to all that dwelt round about them. On the next day, Moses stripped the dead bodies of their enemies and gathered together the armor of those that were fled. And gave rewards to such as had signalized themselves in the action. And highly commended Joshua, their general, who was attested to by all the army on account of the great actions he had done. Nor was any one of the Hebrews slain. Let me read that line again. Nor was any one of the Hebrews slain. That's the Hebrew understanding of the battle of Rephidim. We lost none. They lost all. Why? Uh, The rod of God was lifted up. Don't you realize how powerful that is? You need to know what happens when the rod of God is lifted up in your life. When Jesus Christ is lifted. All battles are won. Without exception. But the slain of the enemy's army were too many to be enumerated. Have you ever seen two nations go to war? One in disarray, sheep, you know, hardly having a clue what to do with some borrowed swords that are a little rusty from uh, the Red Sea. And not one of them is slain. And the Lord said unto Moses, write this for memorial in a book. The first time Moses is commanded to write... Is right now. The book of the Bible that we know begins the battle of Rephidim. Why? Why is it significant that this moment becomes a hallmarking moment in history? And God is moved to say to his man, who by the way is well educated and knows how to write, which no other Hebrew does. He is well educated. He can write. Provision. It's extraordinary. The education of the Hebrews has a cornerstone. Write this for memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Did he? You know what the cross is? It's a fulfillment of that prophecy. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. Which means the Lord our banner in the Hebrew. However, I I like, as you will see, what... uh, Josephus's translation of it is it's really good for he said because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation you see the Bible has a very critical theme that you don't want to miss flesh versus spirit and God is at enmity with the flesh it's the principle of sin and this sin that has entombed you in Egypt and will attempt to nip at your heels when you come out must be dealt the fatal blow It must not be given a place. It must be removed and utterly destroyed so that an open highway is made through the wilderness 
into the land of promise. Flavius Josephus says, So Moses offered sacrifices of thanksgiving to God and built an altar, which he named the Lord the Conqueror, Jehovah Nissi. He also foretold that the Amalekites should utterly be destroyed and that hereafter none of them should remain because they fought against the Hebrews and this when they were in the wilderness and in their distress also. Moreover, he refreshed the army with feasting and thus did they fight this first battle with those that ventured to oppose them after they were gone out of Egypt. This is the first battle. Provenient grace, divine work already accomplished. You are saved by grace. The first work of grace that saves you is already accomplished. It's an amazing thing, but a lot of us think we have to do something. It's like, okay, so what you're saying is I need to go into the battle of Rephidim. I need to somehow walk in there and and take him down like Joshua did. I I just feel ill-equipped for this. I don't know how to fight. I'm I'm a a slave. I'm a brickmaker. I don't have anything. And someone could give you a rusty sword from the Red Sea and say, well, here, you can use this. I don't even know how to wield it. I can't fight this army. The battle of Rephidim is history. It's already done. It's already fought. If I were to say, do the Israelites need to fight the battle of Rephidim again? Why would they? They already discomfited Amalek. Do you need to fight the flesh in your life? You know that the battle against the flesh is history? It's already been beaten. You must recognize your position. And that is that Joshua has already gone to the field. He has already discomfited Amalek. However, the ghosts of Amalek stand in the, in the valley of Rephidim. And they holler at you. And if you give way to fear, if you give way to intimidation, they will control you. But they're ghosts. They have no power. Don't you remember the battle speech of Moses? Before we get done, I'll read it again. Because you need to recognize your enemy has been discomfited. Divine work already accomplished. The entire history of Israel is a work of provenient grace, the provision of God, the providence of Jehovah. You get to your corner. You get to the valley of Rephidim. Guess what? You smile and say, God, what do you have for me? He says, I have the cross. You're like, you already had it thought through that when I got here, I would have everything I need? Yeah, yeah, I did. You see, he knew you needed to be freed from your enslavement in Egypt. He knew you were going to be backed up to the corner and you would have no way of escape. But he made a way for you. That's why he's known as the way. And he knew you were going to run into the ghosts of the flesh. But he's already dealt with them. Otherwise, you would be stopped cold. You would not be able to progress. But he knows what you need before you get there. The battles that are before you have already been won. But you must rise up to conquer. You must rise up to dispel all those voices that are mocking the living God. You must rise up to clear out the valley of Rephidim. And make an open highway for the passage of God in your life. You're headed to the land of promise. And nothing's going to stop you. Why? Because you have Joshua. You have Yeshua. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The provision was made. 
The serpent's head has been crushed. The perfect cannon, the rod. You know that God did the whole thing. He made the incredible Messiah test. He says, my Messiah must look like this. And if he doesn't look exactly like this, you have freedom to stone him. And Jesus fulfilled the canon test, the measurement of the rod. He was laid down next to the rod and he came out measured perfectly. He has the divine right to rule and control Israel the same way the first five books did. It's been measured. He's canon. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. Who's he speaking to? This is Moses. God's saying, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Who is this? He's talking of Jesus. The one likened unto Moses. He's the second mighty deliverer. The one of greater glory. There's one that will come, and the one that is after Moses, the one likened unto Moses, it says in Hebrews, for this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That's saying a lot to the Hebrews. Moses is is the guy to the Hebrews. But this man, the one that comes, that is like Moses, will be counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. The one that follows is God. The Christian doctrine found in the battle at Rephidim, Moses. Who is Moses? What does he represent? Moses was not able to enter into the land flown with milk and honey, but he longed to enter. He could only see it. He could only look into those things. He's the first covenant. You cannot enter in after the law. Moses is symbolic of the law. Can you get a better character in all of history to enunciate the law? And the law cannot enter, cannot participate. And so Moses is held short. Moses is the man of canon authority. He's the original cornerstone of scripture. He's the old covenant. He's symbolic of it. He's the law. That which cannot enter but longs to. Can only see that which the second born, the eighth generation is able to taste. He's a pattern for a future prophet. A second Moses overseeing the destruction of the flesh in Rephidim. He's the first general of the law. He's the first deliverer the blood of the lamb. The Passover lamb. The paschal lamb. He's the first tabernacle. The one built of human hands. And a shadow of one to come. He's a shadow of Jesus. But Jesus is the second general. He's the second deliverer. He's the second tabernacle. Aaron. Remember who's on that hill? You have three characters. You have Moses, the law, the first covenant. And then you have Aaron. Who's Aaron? He's of Levi, the tribe of Levi. Okay, which is the head of the line of priests, the teachers of the law. He's the first high priest. He's the father of a human priest. He's the minister of the first tabernacle. Well, who's the second high priest? Who established an entire new priestly line? Jesus. Actually, you wouldn't say he established it. He completed it. It's the the line of Melchizedek. But he's the second high priest. And he's he's also a picture there. In other words, you have Moses. You have Aaron. And you have a man named Hur. Hur, remember uh, Aaron was from Levi. Hur is of Judah. You have Levi and Judah. You have the line of priests and the line of the kings. However, the interesting thing about Hur, other than the fact that you saw Josephus said he married, he was the husband of Miriam, the brother, I'm sorry, the sister of Aaron and Moses. But what we also have is the fact that 
His line is not the direct descendancy of Jesus. But his line is the direct descendancy of those that built the tabernacle. And all the things in the tabernacle. So he's the head of the line of tabernacle temple, temple builders. The grandfather of Bezalel who was filled with the spirit. He's the chief artisan of the temple. He built the ark and the altar. Even the ark, even the altar that was in Solomon's temple was built by Bezalel. The Ark of Covenant, the altar, these things, all these artifacts were built by Bezalel. He's a shadow of one to come. Do you know that you are his workmanship? Speaking of Jesus, he's the great artisan filled with the spirit. He's a carpenter of all things. You see, there is a shadow of one to come and it all upholds and supports something. The one that will come. Moses, the stone underlayment. Remember, he couldn't hold it up. And so he was given, a, they found a stone for him to sit upon. And then two men held him up. The stone, what is that? It's the word of God. It's the rock of Christ. It's the root, the origin of, it's the supply, the undergirding, the provenient grace. You know, there was a stone there. They're like, there's provision. Here's a stone. You can sit on this stone. This stone will uphold you. And then we will uphold your hands. Why? So that that rod would be lifted up. So that Israel could win over the flesh. Everything in the Old Testament is what builds to the cross. Everything supports and is holding it up. And the rod become flesh. Jesus Christ literally declaring on that cross, Psalm 22. Read it. Father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's in Hebrew language, Psalm 22. They pierced my hands and feet, is what Psalm 22 reads. They parted my clothes and cast lots for them. That's what Psalm 22 says. Don't you realize I am he? The rod, the cannon. Jesus, the cannon made flesh, the divine authority of God, the perfect measurement, tested and approved, the offspring. A rod is a branch. Jesus is called multiple times in the Old Testament. I don't know how many times it is. Eight to ten times. The branch. It's the new covenant. That which is higher. That which is better. That which must be lifted high. A shadow of one to come. That rod is a shadow of Jesus Christ. Joshua. Yeshua. He's of Ephraim, the second born. The eighth generation from Abraham, the new beginning. The man of salvation. The one built to go hand to hand with the flesh. The victor, the second general, the one tutored by the law and prepared to walk in the power of grace. The one who doesn't just see the promise, but actually enters into it and brings Israel with him. A shadow of one to come. Joshua, Jesus. Your personal Rephidim, you are pre-built for battle. Everything that you need has already been given you. You say, I'm weak. I don't have any armament. I don't have any confidence in battle. I don't know how to fight. Everything you need has been given you. Don't you realize who Jesus is? Don't you realize what Jesus has done? He didn't just set you free from the slavery of Egypt to cast you into the wilderness to be killed. Which is, of course, what all the Israelites were saying to you. Did you do this to us so we can be cast out of here just to be killed? No. He has a purpose. And you must trust your God that he has made provision for you. You are pre-built to win in this battle. You may feel weak and unable to fight, but the impenetrable armor is already supplied, waiting to be put on. Do you know that there's a whole 
war chest. And if you would simply open it, you would realize that everything you need for this battle is already given you. Uh, there's armor and it's impenetrable. Why don't you stick it on? Uh, the unstoppable sword is already supplied and is waiting to be wielded. It's just sitting there waiting to be picked up. The bread and the water of Israel is provided in limitless supply to any of God's soldiers that simply ask. The greatest conqueror of all history stands at the head of the almighty war machine. Could you imagine the greatest conqueror? If we were to see a Napoleon or an Alexander the Great waiting there saying, uh, no, you fight for me. Fight with me. Come in line. Are we going to tremble? If we realize, whoa, we might be just a bunch of ragtag sheep, but we got him. That has to count for something. And this great and mighty conqueror, Jesus, has already declared the battle won. What? Yeah, that's right. He proveniently broke the back of this enemy host and publicly shamed and defrocked the enemy's general. You didn't hear? Oh, those are just ghosts. Don't you realize they're already defeated? He has proveniently removed the enemy camp all of, from the enemy camp all weaponry, armor, and supply. They are without strength, without confidence, and utterly vulnerable. The enemy is already rooted. Grace began working on your behalf long before you ever cried out for it. Jesus Yeshua is the one who proved himself illustrious in battle. He is the great deliverer that trounced the Amalekites in the depths of our own inner Rephidim 2,000 years ago on the cross. He is the Lord, the conqueror. The battle of Rephidim happened thousands of years ago. It is a battle over and done. None of you are going to argue that. But when it comes to the battle with your flesh, did you know that we argue it all the time? Because I'm going to make a statement of fact. The battle with sin happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. It is a battle over and done. However, we're still fighting for our lives. This is a major battle. We must know the victor. We must know his ability. We must know what he accomplished. Reckon the battle won and march out to meet the defeated foe. Romans 6 tells us exactly that. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For in that he died, speaking of Jesus, he died unto sin once. But in that he lives, he lives unto God. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Now I'm going to give you a new way of reading this. We'll call it the Battle of Rephidim edition. Okay, that same scripture in Romans. Usually what we do in the Old Testament is we bring it to the New Testament. I'd like to take a New Testament verse and bring it back in time to the Battle of Rephidim. Knowing this, that your personal Amalek is utterly prostrated and conquered by Yeshua's victory. That the blockade in your journey to the promised land might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not be subservient to this enemy. For in that Yeshua did this conquering work, he only needed to do it once. His victory is sufficient for all time. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be no longer hindered by this Amalekite host. And fully possessing the victory and the spoils through Yeshua, our mighty general and conqueror. Let not Amalek or any of his offspring therefore reign in your personal land. That you should obey them in their corrupt and deceitful ways. 
For Amalek or any of his offspring shall not have dominion over you. For provision has been made for the arms of the law to uphold and commemorate the beautiful rod. And so you fight this battle not in the strength of human effort, but in the strength of grace. The secret to victory in Rephidim. I am made a minister, this is Paul speaking in Colossians, according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but is now revealed to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, here's the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, it might make sense to you if you've been to Ellerslie, but if not, that might be a little confusing. Look at what it says. Whom we preach, speaking of Jesus, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Wait a minute. This says Christ in you, the hope of glory. This one says that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Something is working mightily within Paul. And that's the hope of glory. The secret Get inside the great general, and then the great general can get inside you. There's the gospel in a very quick nutshell. The one who defeated the flesh is waiting for you to get inside of him. Could you imagine going to battle against anything inside your general? He has all the authority. He's already trounced them. He's already stood upon their neck. You get inside of him, and you start going against your flesh. And guess what? Your flesh bows It's already been discomfited. Exert the authority of the great general in whom you walk and live. And then guess what? This great general gets inside of you. And the great secret to Christianity isn't just the clothing you wear. It's the fact that you become the clothing of God. And now, God, this great general, Yeshua, the man of salvation, is at work within this inner territory, exerting his authority over all the land, all the Amalekites and their descendants and offspring, all the Jebusites, all the Hittites. There is nothing that can stand 31 hostile empires, even of giants and walled cities that reach up to the heavens. Nothing can stand before your Yeshua in whom you live and who lives inside of you. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The war cry of the great general. Here's that war cry from earlier. I just need to read it to you again as we close. Whoa. We we are an army built by God and for God. You mustn't measure our numbers based on what you see with your eyes, but rather you must determine the Hebrew war machine to be of vast numberless ranks, lacking nothing and armed to the teeth with the finest weaponry and wear, fully financed without need of anything, possessing all that which would supply you as God's soldiers, that undaunted courage to march confidently into battle. You must reckon that you, God's army, are an unstoppable force handcrafted by the Lord of hosts himself. And you must have eyes to see the enemy ranks before you as they actually are. They are not strong and mighty as they would first appear. But rather, they are an army withering with cowardice. They are a small, unimpressive troop. They are unarmed, weak, and in want of all convenience that would properly prepare them for battle. Do not perceive them to be a ready force. 
but rather an ignorant and disordered troop that is set out on an ill-conceived battle attempting to blaspheme the armies of the living God. So, dear soldiers of the war machine of God Almighty, be strong and of good courage, for the Lord is the conqueror, and he will not lose. We got to see that after all. Your battle with the flesh may appear impossible. How many of you, well, you don't need to raise your hand. Is the battle with the flesh impossible? Your cravings for sensual desire and comfort, sexuality is completely messed up. Fear, anxiety controls you. Pride, arrogance, greed. Is there any hope? Or is this just the lot of us as men? To be defeated in the valley of Rephidim right after we come out of Egypt. To be subservient to the Amalekites for the remainder of our days. To go from one enslavement to yet another. Is that the purpose of the cross? Your battle with the flesh may appear impossible, but remember... With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He has made provision for the impossible that lies before you. Sure, it's impossible with you. But it's not impossible with him. You reckon the work of the cross as your own. What I wanted to finish with today. Do we have that ready, by the way? This is our debut of our latest Bravehearted Thought. Uh, it's called The Ancient War Cry. And it was just released yesterday. And I don't know how many of you would have gotten the email on it, but uh, this is our public debut of it. And I want to forewarn you that uh, Eric is a little loud in this. You've heard me loud. I'm saying I'm really loud in this. The very first words that come out of this will shock you. But this is a very appropriate finish for what we just talked about. We need a war cry. We must recognize that we are at war and that the general that we serve is victorious without exception. of a mighty man, tenacity of soul, the gritting of the teeth of the spirit-inspired warrior, and the bearing of those teeth to the enemy. Kasach is possessing a resolute and growling resolve for the glory of God, a flush of spiritual fervor, a tensing of all a soldier's muscles. There's a Kasach. We don't have that spiritually. We should. We don't. Because we don't know what we're engaged with. Did you know that you have the armory of heaven? That you have everything you need for life and godliness to push the enemy forces back. And so when you hear, Kasach, your knuckles spiritually should immediately turn white. And you should find yourself gritting your spiritual teeth. 
with a belligerence against the enemy. He goes down. There are souls that must be saved. And that's just Kasak. The Hebrew statement is Barak Kasak. However, in the Bible, where that came from, it's Kasak Imas. The other word that goes with it, Imas. It's heavenly audacity. It's rushing headlong into the most hazardous and impossible battles without pausing to consider the impossibilities. Who had Amats in the Bible? David against Goliath? That's some serious Amats. Okay, he's rushing headlong against the Goliath. It's like, David, we might want to think about this a little. No, I'm not weighing the impossibilities. This is for my God. It's a confidence in victory even before the field is taken. It's lambs moving with liquid ferocity straight into the lion's lair. How about the three that overheard him in the cave of the duel? Just all oh, for a cup of cool water from the well of Bethlehem. Those guys had a moss. They go run out, break through a garrison of Philistines to grab a cup of cool water and then bring it back through the garrison. They're being hunted by Philistines the whole time trying not to spill a cup of water. That's the moss. Mere men and women on earth are eaten up by the enemy. However, we're not just mere men and women of this earth. We are redeemed. We are bought with a price. And we have been changed into the body of Christ. A means swift-footed, all-believing, super-conquering, prevailing faith in the Lord of battles. What happens to the world if Christians once again get Kasach and Amatz? You know what the apostles had after Pentecost? Something came into them. What was it? You can say it very simply. Kasach and Amatz. The Spirit of God. He came in to win. He came in to turn this world on its head. Moses' last gasp. This is his great speech before the promised land, which he never got to enter into. And he's laying out the ground rules for the kingdom that is about to be established across that Jordan River. Be strong and of good courage. Kasach, the mocks. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that does go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Kasach, the mocks. Be strong and of good courage. For thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord has sworn unto their fathers to give them, and thou shalt cause them to inherit it. Well, what's happening there? The men and women of God are coming to take what was purchased, the promise. You are surrounded by 31 hostile empires. You know, that's what they were headed into. 31 empires on the other side of that Jordan River. 31! This is where we are at as the Church of Jesus Christ, yet we are there without a war cry. Let's understand that we are out to win for the glory of Jesus Christ. And even if we die, we win. doesn't matter what happens to our bodies. We obey, God wins. Now suddenly we're crossing. Joshua is the same name for Jesus in the New Testament, by the way. Yeshua. This is the Savior, the man of salvation, who has come in to bring us into the inheritance. Strong and good courage. For unto this people shall thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swore unto their fathers to give them. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Rock to sock. Be not afraid. Neither be thou dismayed. 
for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Rock Kasak, Israel. Rock Kasak, men and women of God Almighty. All the powers of earth and hell that come against your soul and all the powers of earth and hell that are puppeteering the lost masses, you hit them square in the teeth. And you show love to this world. To anyone who would spit in your face, you serve them and you love them in return and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Rock Kasak, Israel. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.